Good morning, everyone. Um, it's great to be here again. Some of you may know this. Not that I'm that memorable, but I think this is my fifth time uh, that, I've, that I've preached here. Um, and so some of you are probably thinking, you know, I've been here 10 years. I don't even remember that guy at all, but that's fine. <laughs> um, just to echo some things that have been said, I want to say a few words, which, by the way, don't count towards my sermon time. Just want to be really clear about that, which, which I was told was a, a minimum of an, an hour. And so I think I have that straight. Um, so whatever I do, you're going to feel better, right? Because it won't be an hour. Paul says this to the Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. This is chapter 1, verse 3, and now 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I can tell you the 100% confidence what Paul is thankful for, what he's giving thanks to God for, for the Philippians is not here in this place the work that they're doing, but it's the support, their support for his ministry of the gospel. That doesn't mean that's all they ever did, right? But the particular thing that he's thankful for here, the thing that he's saying from the first day until now, right, always in every prayer, remembering you is because of their support of his ministry and the ministry of his, of his companions. And he, he viewed that as full-on gospel ministry, the support of the gospel ministry, right? So when you host the, uh, when you host the conference like you did this week and so many of you volunteered and so many of you prayed, that is not just a side thing that you happen to tack on to what happens here at the church. That is absolutely supporting and taking part in, as Paul says, participating in, right? Not just funding or giving to, which that's yeah, part of it. It's not just that. It's actual participation, and God counts it as that, and so your labor is not in vain in the Lord, and it matters to Him. Uh, and so it's a, it was a privilege to be here again. Thank you, and of course, we're praying. As, as everybody has said, we continue to pray, and I'll continue to pray for you. In these, uh, in these hectic days that are coming up, it's always shocking how hectic the, several fir- the first several days are, you know, and then, uh, and then when all's said and done, there's all of a sudden this quiet that just, it's like a, you know, sort of like the next step. And so we will not stop praying for you. As long as we're in Philippians. I'm going to preach today from a text that I'm just going to go down on a limb. It's not even a big limb and say that everybody knows. Uh, But before I read that text, you ever heard this phrase? You have. Some assembly required, right? That is every parent's Christmas Eve nightmare. Some assembly required. I can remember lots of Christmas Eves, but one in particular where we got Jamie, uh, my daughter, a dollhouse. And, uh, you know, I consider myself to be kind of handy. I grew up working in a in an auto shop, though I should remember a lot that they usually would never let me near cars with tools. But for whatever, in my own memory, though, right, I'm like super handy. I can do anything, right? So in my own view of myself. And so I'm like, well, I can, it's a dollhouse, right? No problem. And so, you know, Jamie stays up for a while later than normal, and then like, okay, it's time to get the dollhouse together. Some assembly required, it says. 
Uh, that was maybe around 11.30. I think it was 4.20-something when all the assembly was finished, including various spare parts that apparently had nothing to do with the assembly but were sitting over there, and I thought, well, those must not matter, right? They just That must be extra parts. Um, and I don't want to talk about this too long, but one of the things I did... One of, the, one of the things I did in getting ready was I just took a look on the internet about this phrase, some assembly required. And you know, I dug a little bit, and one sort of term came up more than any other, and that was Ikea, right? And then, the, and then just to read the comments of people trying to put this Ikea for, if you've ever seen Ikea, you don't even get instructions. You get these pictures of these weird rounded people, uh, and you try to put them together. And then it's, and now, to be fair, it is clear that a lot of the people trying to put these things together, right, they had one tool, a hammer, and if you have a hammer, everything is a nail, right? But besides that, it was just all complaints about how hard it was to put together. Um, and then another thing that I read, uh, I'm, I'm particularly into, into cycling, that is bikes, and uh, I read this, I saw this video, this, this uh, online bike company declaring that their bikes can be assembled by any 12-year-old. Now, apparently, that may be true, but apparently, if you're above 12, it's almost impossible. It's like 12 is the cutoff. Up to that point, yeah. Though one guy did say, yeah, my 12-year-old, after I sent him to engineering school, and then he came home, he put this bike together. Because it was some, but, it, but that's what it said. It said, mostly assembled, but yet some assembly required. Now, why am I rambling on and on and on about this? The reason that I'm talking about this phrase that we all know and dread, some assembly required, is that we wouldn't put it that way sometimes the way we think about our own salvation. That there is some assembly required, right? That, that God has sort of got the thing started, and so now it's time to kind of get to work and finish that assembly. What we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to take up where Nathan uh, left off at verse 11, and I'm going to read 12 to 18, but I'm actually only going to talk, I'm actually going to mostly preach on just a small part of it, and it's the part that we all know the best. But verse 12, chapter 2, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for the words, this is the word of the Lord, just to sort of trickle out of our mouth, just in a rote sort of way, just something that we say. 
But Lord, it is, it is your word. It's not just words, it's words on the page that we stand back and look at, but it is you speaking. But Lord, we need you to open our hearts. We need you, Lord, to clear out all the things in our minds that would that are vying for our attention, all kinds of, as many things as there are people in this room. So, Lord, I pray that in the midst of the noise in our hearts, in our minds, that you would shine the light of your word, that we would hear you speaking, not just so we can gather information, but that we would be sanctified by your sanctified and holy word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Philippians 12, work, I'm going to really focus on the, the verse, I mean the part that you know I'm going to focus on. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, over the years, I've heard this verse described like this, and I, I just want to say right off the bat, it may sound like I'm saying it's not good, but I don't mean it this way. But I've heard things like, you know, you've got to work out what God has worked in. I'm like, well, okay. I'm not going to really stand up and say anything about that. Or you have to become what you are, which is a popular thing to say. And it's one of those things that you say to people, and it, and it kind of does sometimes get like the, mm, yes. You're like, well, what does that mean, though? Right? It's easy to hear something catchy and agree with it, but what does that mean, or what does it look like? I mean, I even, I even agree with saying you've got to become what you are, but if you think about it, it's a weird thing to say, right? If, we, if you said it in almost like any other context, people would be like, what do you mean, become what I, you mean just be me? How do I become what I am? Now, of course, we know what we mean by it, but we want to be careful that we don't take a verse like this and just sort of turn it into like a a slogan, right? As though if we come up with a slogan that we can kind of all agree on or at least not get upset about, right? It's whatever the minimum amount of agreement me- needs to be, you know? Um, work out what God's, you know, sort of, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, work out what God has started or become what you are, any number of those things. We want to be careful, though, that that doesn't then become all we think about this verse, a slogan, we just sort of take the verse and then turn it into something that's kind of memorable, and then we move on. Because if we do that, if we do that, then when it comes up, if somebody ever says, and we talk about this verse a lot, what is it, what's Paul mean to work out your salvation? Then we're probably just going to say something like, we're probably just going to say something like, well, you just got to work out what God's worked in. But you haven't actually answered that question. You haven't actually told that person who's asking you that. You haven't actually told them anything. You've just given kind of a popular kind of paraphrase of the verse. And it's a verse that we all as Christians, I think, maybe just speaking personally, I don't think I am, have struggled with. Right? Uh, Christians who, as we do, and we should, often and maybe always, hopefully, speak of God's grace God's free gift of salvation, right? Our assurance in Jesus, all who comes to me, I will never cast out, right? All the Father gives me will come to me, and he who comes to me, I will in no ways, in no way, never drive away. And we talk about those verses all the time. And then we come across a verse like this, 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so then we might just sort of try to talk about how, well, okay, here's what it, and this is a good thing to say, right? Here's what it really means. And what we might do then is kind of describe it in a way where we're basically kind of apologizing that Paul said something like this. And then sort of saying, well, and then we give an explanation maybe, and it's like, well, it's not exactly how I thought that would go, but, you know, it kind of matches. But here's a question. If work out your salvation is, uh, with fear and trembling, if that means you've got to finish what God's completed, if that means you've got to work out what God has worked in, or if, this, if that's all it means, this is something to ask you a question. I don't, I don't know any of you. I know some of you well, and a lot of you I don't know, but this, I've got a question for you. Seriously, ask yourself, based on your experience and your track record, how confident are you in your ability that you're going to be able to work out your salvation and complete what God has started? Right? So you, we read this and we think, hmm, okay. Now, I'm not trying to depress you right off the bat. <laughs> I promise. So just let me say this. When it comes to salvation, when God accepts you by faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins because of his once and for all sacrifice of himself on the cross and his victory over sin and death, there is no assembly required on your part. In fact, we could say not some assembly, no assembly required. Now, if you want to put it another way, you could say all assembly required, but God's the one who does all the assembling. So all I'm trying to say is in this verse, I don't think that Paul is saying you've got to finish what God started. Now, I'm pretty confident that I'm on the right track because I know what's in chapter 1. Sometimes we come to this verse, and we, then we just sort of have at it, right? What's it mean to work out your salvation? Well, it means you got to do these things, but, of course, and that's fine. I'm, I'm all for talking, you know? I'm all for having come. Absolutely. But one of the things that would help us read this verse is if we started at the beginning of the letter. Now, just say, for instance, if I wrote you a letter, you're like, nobody writes letters. Okay. So I write you an email. You're like, why is this guy emailing me? So we get over those sort of questions. And let's pretend, let's pretend it's like, I don't know, short, like three short paragraphs. And I send you an email, and, you know, I see you later, uh, and we're talking about it. And I'm like, hey, what would you think about that? Uh, do you think uh, the first paragraph, second paragraph has something about, say, a trip I made to, I don't know, Florida? I'm making this up as I go, so you have to forgive me. And you're like, what, what, what trip to Florida? I'm like, what a trip to Florida that I talked about in my email. And you're like, oh, well, I mean, I just kind of read the beginning and then kind of skipped to the end. I'm like, you did? Really? Like, yeah, because that's how I read letters. I just kind of jump in, right? Well, of course, we would never do that. And the great news is, right, so anytime you think about man, the Bible, and the Bible can be difficult to understand, and Peter, this makes me feel good, in 2 Peter, even said Paul, who writes things that are sometimes hard to understand. But the great news is, if we just take what Paul wrote to us in this letter, it's going to answer a lot of our questions, or at least help us. 
right? Because I'm 100% sure, I wasn't there, I'm 100% sure when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he would assume they would start at the beginning, they would just sort of read along to the end. But he's already said another verse that we know really well, but sometimes don't connect to chapter 2. And that is found in verse 6 of chapter 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul has already said, what God has started, he will finish. And so we can just say this, right? God does not start anything that he does not complete himself. God does not start anything and say, well, I've kind of got it rolling. Now I'm going to turn it over to you. And you better be careful because now I'm watching. Right? And then that's where the sort of sometimes the, the fear and trembling part comes in. So I just want to talk to you about a, just a, a couple of things today, which I've already started, really. And that is the first thing is that when it comes to work out your salvation, step one is believing and resting in the fact that you are God's work from first to last, not your own. And that God is not depending on you to finish what he started. Right? Much less thinking, man, I really had some big plans for you. You know? I mean, I got you off to a great start. I couldn't have done more for you. I mean, I handed it to you on a platter. But, you know, you just kind of dropped the ball. That never happens. Secondly, we're going to talk about, from this text, what it looks like. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm going to try not to spend too much time on that, because that one could, if I'm not careful, shoot off into a second sermon, which I promise I won't let happen. And then finally, just a few, just a, just a few comments on why, why it really, really matters. Right? So the step, step one, step one is not shocking, it is believing and clinging to what God says and, when God, and knowing that when God says something, it is absolutely true and given to you in love. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You can never let that go. And so then when you come, when you come to, uh, when you come to chapter 2, notice that Paul says, as you have always obeyed. So he's not telling them to start something new, right? This is not out of the blue. He's like, just like you have been doing, continue on. So he's encouraging them to persevere in what it is they're doing. He's encouraging them to persevere in being God's work, right? So so work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and we'll, we'll talk about that more. But let's talk about, we can't get around it, the fear and trembling part. Right? I mean, if work out your salvation isn't the, feel, it doesn't feel like the catch to this verse, then certainly fear and trembling does. What does that mean? Well, the Bible, of course, has a lot to say about fear and trembling. And about fear of the Lord, I'm not, going to re I'm not going to recite everything that you've heard and everything that we know about it. But I'm going to say this on a practical level. I think sometimes we think of God as the God who saves us graciously apart from our works in Jesus. And then once he does, God the Father then sort of sits back and says, got my eye on you. And not as in like, hey, I got my eye on you with a smile. It's like, I got my eye on you. So, you know, you better watch out. 
And so we have this idea that God gives us this gift of salvation in Jesus, that he promises to finish what he started, but somehow, or for some reason, he's going to do that and then always be looking over our shoulder, just waiting for us to trip up. So he'd be like, aha, I got you. Now, nobody that I know of would describe God that way. But I've known a couple of people who live like that's true. Who, in spite of what they say about God, which is true, in spite of what they say about God, in spite of the way they, in spite of the way they describe God, which is good, they practically live as though God is like, the worst high school principal that anybody ever had. Like, like just always, not, like, I know you're going to mess up ahead of time. I already know it. It's just a matter of time, and when you do, I'm going to be there. So let's talk about a couple of things that this fear and trembling is not in the Bible. Number one, When Paul says, in fear and trembling, he is not talking about living as though God is out to get you the minute you slip up. God never will guide us or direct us or motivate us by fear, like that kind of fear, the fear of getting caught, right? The fear of like everything coming down on us. Secondly, God is not threatening you. And I think practically this is the, the hard thing on a practical sort of basis is we might see this as God threatening us. So in other words, now we are motivated maybe to, I better, you know, I better um, dot every I and cross every T, mind my P's and Q's. I better do this because if I don't, God's going to get me. Now, Somebody, somebody might already be say, saying, are you saying that God doesn't uh, discipline us and punish us for sin? I haven't said that. I'm just saying that we need to be careful about what we think this is. Now, here's, a, here's another way to think about it, and maybe this will help. Do you remember in Genesis what Adam did after he and Eve ate the fruit? They did something they had never, ever, ever done before. They hid when God came. So God came and said, where are you? And it's not because he was like, well, where did they get to? And, and what, does, what does Adam say? I heard you, and I was afraid. It is not the fear of Adam and Eve in the garden When Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it is not the fear of impending judgment and dread in the presence of God. Right? So every day is not a do-over where you start from scratch. So here's what it is. It is living with the reality that the one who is working in you is the God who created the entire world and is sovereign and all-powerful. He is the one with whom you have to do. Secondly, it's an, secondly, it is an acknowledgement and confession of our own inability. It is this fear and trembling that comes from, if this is left up to me, I know how this is going to go. 
if finishing my salvation, if that's my work, I should just go ahead and throw in the towel. So it's the fear of knowing that apart from God, there is no hope and there is no salvation, there is no future. And, and simply, it's the reality of children living under the authority of their father. Verse 15, he calls them the children of God. Yeah, I mean, I had a loving, my dad was the greatest, and he and I were really close, and we got closer over the years, not that we didn't have sort of a typical mid-teens and beyond sort of relationship. But, and my dad, you know, my dad was a, uh, he was a D-Day vet, and uh, he worked every day of his life, and he was super loving and very kind and generous and funny. But you know, I didn't mess with him. Well, I mean, I did. But when I did, there were consequences. In other words, I loved my dad, and he loved me, and I was always secure around my dad, and I was always safe around my dad, always. But you know, I had a healthy, proper child-to-father fear of him that didn't make me terrified of him, but was proper for that relationship, right? Because my dad and I were friends, but our basic relationship wasn't we're buddies. Now, we were buddies, but that's not, that's not how a, a, a father or a parent, any parent and their children, they may be the best of friends, but they're best of friends in a parent and child relationship. Not just sort of buddies who met up. There is always that. And there needs to be. And there must be. And so I think we need to sort of be just thinking about fear and trembling in this sort of biblical kind of way and not in, wow, God was really nice until I got saved. And now that I'm saved, it's like, it's just waiting unless Jesus jumps in to help me, right? So we just, want to be, we just want to be careful with that. So, what does it look like? And this is where we can talk about what it is. What does it look like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Like, what is it? Well, the good news is Nathan has already read the text to us earlier. See, Paul doesn't start with verse 12. We sometimes do, Right? But you know, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is working in you both to will and to work for his good purpose, which connects it back to chapter one. But Paul's already told them, here's exactly what it looks like. And what it looks like is to follow in the way of Jesus. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort with love, this is the beginning of the chapter, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same joy, uh, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, here it comes. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You want to know what it looks like to work out your salvation? Here you go. Take it from Paul. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, is there, more to, is there more that we could say about the Christian life? Yes. 
But see, Paul has already handed them. This is what it looks like. And so then he, so then he says, he says, not, don't, don't, don't just look after your own interests, but the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourselves. And that's what it looks like to work out your salvation, because in working out your salvation, what you are doing is living out the salvation that Jesus has given you and following in his footsteps. You don't have to guess. And then he gives the ultimate example of all. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, <laughs> though he was in the form of God, did not account equality God a thing to be grasped. Now, I just want to stop right there. When you hear the word grasped, you think two things. I'm not telling you what you think. I'm just telling you how, what your options are, basically, if you, talk, if, you, if you talk English, right? There's my West Virginia just popped out, right? So, I'm from West Virginia, and it's my favorite place in the world. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. But it does make me th say things like, if you talk English, right? So, there's two things that you think of when you hear the word grasped, right? One is this, right? And the other is, I get it, right? Do you have another option? Not really. Now, I'm not saying this is a bad translation, by the way. I'm just saying the word, the word grasp, it means more than, it means more than, obviously it doesn't mean Jesus thought equality God something that he couldn't get or that he momentarily kind of like practically, as it were, forgot it. Or set it, you know, just sort of set these things aside, decided, I'm not going to be like God in certain ways for a time. And I also don't think it means he didn't account equality of God as something to be grasped, right? So he just, I'm not going to drop it. It won't go well. He just let it go. He like Elsa'd it, right? And that's all he did. And so, thank you. Um, and so, yeah, he just didn't grasp. He just let it go. He let his equality of God, he just let it go. What I, what I think is this, and this is what makes sense here, is he didn't count equality of God's thing to be grasped. That is, a thing to hold to for his own advancement. A thing to exploit for his own good. He didn't capitalize on it. And see, this is, what, this is how Paul sets up Jesus' sacrifice. Though he was in the form of God, and that doesn't mean like, like a God, he didn't count that as something to use for his own advantage, to grasp it just for himself, but took on the form of a servant. And so what that immediately does is that kind of puts it, that, that helps us understand what it looks like, you know, what are the things that keep us from sort of living for others? Well, one of the things that, there's many things, but one of the things might be just in regard to, I don't really have time. Or, you know, I'm doing lots of important things right now, and I can't sideline those things, because those are the things I need to be doing. I'm not saying you don't have responsibilities. There's all kinds of things that have to do with me and where I'm going in life and what I'm doing in life that I can't sort of, I might want to, but I can't sort of sacrifice those things for other people right now. 
in the future, when I get through this season in life, whatever that season might be, whether it's a week or like 10 years, then, then I can sort of look to others. Well, what, what Paul is saying about Jesus is he has everything. He didn't even account his equality, his divinity, as a thing to exploit, but he took on the form of a servant. And so, what that immediately says is, when we are sort of in a position where we're like, well, that's like Jesus' job, right? To live for others. I mean, that's what he does. Now, again, nobody would say that, but I'm talking about the way, not I'm not talking about things we would say, but the way it kind of, if we would really, really just sort of describe what we think and how we live sometimes. So, what we're saying is, when we refuse to live for others and to put others first, practically what we're saying is, that's fine for Jesus, but, you know, I'm kind of busy. I've got a lot, I need, I'm not, it's fine to be busy. That doesn't mean that every time you're in the middle of something, somebody calls you, you have to drop everything and go do it, right? It doesn't mean that. Was, we, we tend to be extreme about things, like all or nothing. So some people will hear me say this and immediately think, are you saying if I'm at work and I'm in a meeting, an important meeting with my boss, if somebody calls me and says, hey, come help me change my flat tire, i got to drop everything and go do that. I didn't say that. Of course I'm not saying that. But see, the thing is, is when we make everything extreme, everything becomes super easy. But I think what Paul is talking about is, work out your salvation looks like this. Learning to put others ahead of yourself the way Jesus has put you ahead of everything for your salvation. The way he took on the form of a servant, a servant and suffered and died, even death on a cross, for your salvation, the salvation that God has begun in you and will complete until the very end. So, in other words, you are free. You are set free to do something. We are all set free to do something that we, out of the box, could never do, and that is to think of another person's good as more important and better than mine. Because I am never going to supply for myself or provide for myself in any way, shape, or form that even can compare to what God has given me in Jesus. I have everything. I have everything. The Son of God has given His life for me. The Son of, the Son of God did not hold back for me. He became a servant for me. He died on a cross for me. He defeated death for me, for you, and rose from the dead and gives us hope and gives us security and will complete that work in us. Look what He's already done. He's already completed it. He's already at the right hand of God the Father and exalted. And that was for you. He has already given you everything. And one of the things when we grasp this, that this allows us to do is to think, you know what? I can put others ahead of myself because I have nothing to lose. My life is only about gain. 
what I've gained in Jesus and what is mine forever in Jesus. And that can help us begin to think about, this is just some things that it'll look like, okay, then, I'm, then I'll wrap it up. That'll help us to begin to think about why it is that we can put people ahead of ourselves, that why it is that we can live for others, why we can serve others, not just like, well, I better go serve more, right? So we, we don't want to read this thing and think, well, better, I got to serve more, I got to love more, I got to do, of course, yeah, okay, fine, you do, so do I. But don't let this command just become a, I got to do more. I got to be more for God. Yeah, you do. So do I. The first thing we need to do is here in this command, let the command do its work of exposing how we, in fact, have not lived for others the way we should have. Let the command in. Let it in. Let it in and let it shine in your heart. This is what commands do. They don't just say, hey, man. You better get it in gear and go. And you're like, okay, i got to do more. The first thing commands do is they expose our need to hear commands that remind us, you know what, I have not lived like Jesus for the sake of others. And then what does that command do? It points you to the gospel, to the good news and the freedom you have in Jesus. It's only by grasping freedom in Christ that we can live for others, that we can live out our salvation knowing what? That it's not on your shoulders. It's God who is at work both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, it's not on your… This is… I mean, the freedom is, and freedom's tough for us. We say we want freedom, but we kind of, in one way, don't. But we are set free to this degree that my first thing in the morning doesn't have to be me. Doesn't mean you let yourself go and you don't ever care about this. Of course it doesn't mean. Again, we got to avoid these extremes. Because I'm telling you, I've already said it once, extremes make everything easy. Because then it's all or nothing, right? And we'll basically choose the nothing. But I hope that you hear this as, as good news to you. Because look what Paul, look at the, look at the, and, and look at look at the uh, results it has. You can do all things without grumbling or disputing because if we are putting each other before ourselves, what's that going to do? One of the first things that's going to do is cut the cord on grumbling and complaining and sort of uh, like, like sniping at one another and talking about each other. It's going to cut the cord on that because we will see that disputes and complaining and grumbling with regard to other people, I think this is what he's talking about, that doesn't fit in a community that is set on putting each other ahead of themselves. That's, that's how you cut grumbling and complaining and backbiting and talking behind people's backs and doing anything else. All these kind of things that happen that we all do. It's not just, you know what, I need to stop talking behind people's backs. Well, you do. But you see, you've actually been set free because you can't simultaneously live for another person and when they're not around, talk about how bad they are at the same time. Because it's not about selectively live for others, the people who are easy to live for. He doesn't really put any stipulations on it. He doesn't give you like a list. Now, here, let's make a list of the people that you should put ahead of yourself. These people, though, you're allowed just to let it rip on them, whether they're there or not. Now, of course, nobody would think that nobody, nobody sitting here, nobody anywhere that I know would say that's what Paul's saying, but practically, 
practically, it sort of sometimes shows itself that way. It does in my life, right? It's, it's relatively easy for me to live for the people who love me the most, but I'm going to tell you this, tell you this. Do you know where my inability, my lack, my failing to live for others ahead of myself shows itself in the worst ways is around the people who love me the most? Because, you know, it just does. So what do I need to do? I, 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 yeah, I need to be resolved, right? When I get home later today, Lord willing, when I, need, when I, I need to be resolved to put my wife, Denise, ahead of myself. But it's not going to do any good if I just resolve to do it. I have to be able to look at my wife, Denise, who loves me though she knows me, and think, I am so free in Jesus that I can put her ahead of myself. And that's where you need to start, right? Don't start with like a grand plan that's going to change the world. Just think about the people that God puts in front of you today, at home, here, tomorrow at work. I'm not going to name all the possibilities. Tomorrow at school. Because look what happens. You may be blameless and innocent. Why? Because you're putting others people ahead of yourself. You're working out your salvation in confidence that what God says is true. What's the result? You're blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish. We're in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights. You want to shine like lights in a, in a twisted world? Then you do so by doing what? By putting yourselves, putting the needs of others ahead of yourself. By showing the world what it looks like to be people who confess Jesus and to holding out this, holding out this gospel promise to them that God who begins a good work will complete it till the day of Jesus. It just has every, it has every sort of knock-on effect. And I've been told that that's a rugby sort of thing. I've been told it doesn't work. Every domino effect. There you go. It has every domino effect that we can imagine in the Christian life. This beginning of working out your salvation by living for others the way Jesus has lived and lives still for you. It's the thing that results in living properly in the world. It's the thing that results in behaving and speaking correctly together. It's the thing that results in perseverance, holding fast to the word of life, verse 16. So then the day of Christ, this is Paul, that he might be proud of what's happened uh, in his ministry at the Philippians. It leads to, like this is Paul, but it counts for us, to being glad and rejoicing. It leads to everything, because at the heart of it is love your neighbor as yourself. This is sort of an expand. This is Paul just sort of expounding on what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. It means to love others as Jesus has loved you. Are you going to do it perfectly? No. Is this a once and for all fix? No. But we can. Brothers and sisters, by faith, if we believe that what God says is true, that what God has done in the past guarantees His promises for the future, then we are free to live by faith in the present without anything to prove, without anything to show, without needing to, like, you know, 
move, I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with advancement, but we don't have to move, we don't just have to be pushed by advancing. You're not going to advance more than your position in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, as you have always obeyed, so continue to obey. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who has worked at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, because I'm confident in this, that He who began a good work in you will complete it all the way into the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, don't let these words just bounce off of us, make us feel good for a moment, in and out. But Lord, we need you, and we need you, Lord, just to keep your promise. We can tell you about what we need you to do. We just ask you, Lord, to keep your promise, to complete the work that you start in us. Help us to ask that in faith, knowing that you will. Drive out fear. Drive out unbelief. Drive out our doubts. But help us to remember, Lord, that you are infinitely more powerful than our fear, than our unbelief, and our doubts. Renew us this moment in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.